215 and she's feeding us salsa. <laughs> of all the uh, different names that are used in the Bible to describe God, that God uses to describe himself, Father is the most familiar. Father. And it's kind of interesting, you know, our Father, which art in heaven. But I just wanted to pose the uh, question this morning as to whether or not, when you think about God, you think of him as your Father, as your own personal Father. If you would describe your relationship with God as that of a daughter or a son uh, to a father. When Jesus came here to help us really uh, get to know and understand what God is really like, um, he demonstrated his intimacy and his trust and, and uh, God's love to him and so forth by actually using the term Abba, which would translate into dad or daddy in uh, uh, Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 14, when he was uh, praying in the garden, you know, Father, Abba, uh, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And uh, using dad uh, as a name for deity or as a way of addressing God was unprecedented before Jesus. In fact, the Jewish people considered it blasphemous and uh, eventually ended up crucifying Jesus for being a blasphemer, for insisting that God was his personal father. And so it's kind of an interesting um, study to kind of follow that all the way through um, because Jesus actually died for this relationship that he came to offer to us. He was revealing this level of relationship with God that was going to become possible uh, through the gospel. Once our sins were out of the way, once Jesus went to the cross and his blood washed away our sins, uh, there was a clear path for us to know God in this rather intimate, uh, close way. And so, you know, again, when you think about God, how do you think of him? Do you think of him as a personal father? Uh, this relationship was made available to us. If you turn to uh, Romans chapter 8, it'll come up on the screen. Uh, Romans chapter 8 uh, talks about it like this um, in verse uh, 14 to 16. Uh, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons or daughters of God. And you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons or daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We are now the children of God. And again, as you think about your relationship with God and you conceive of that relationship, 1 John 3, uh, again, sort of the same thing. We already read it this morning. But in 1 John 3, the first couple of verses, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. The children of God. And so we are. And the reason why the world doesn't know us is that it, it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. This isn't something like, oh, well, someday I'll be the child of God. No, we are God's children, John says, now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we're going to be like him because we're going to see him as he is. We are God's children now. Do you think of yourself those of us who are fathers or mothers, and we think about the way that we feel about our children, the way we treat our children, the way we think about our children, the way we plan for our children. Imagine having God 
to be your father and just begin to try to think how much does he think about me and how much does he plan for me and how gracious is he to me and so on and so forth and do I think of him in that level of relationship Uh, my identity as Abba's child is probably the single most defining sense of who we are as Christians my identity as a child of God my worth my value my security my sense of belonging all comes from my father in heaven my Abba if you will and uh, when I think about this I realize that one of the coolest things about God is that you know he knows everything I am fully known no secrets with God every thought every deed fully known and fully loved at the same time you got anybody else in your life that's like that fully known and fully loved at the same time um, since Jesus took all of my sin and made that possible and so do you think of yourself as a son or a daughter you know of the living God most of you know that my earthly father uh, passed away last November and um, you know when I found out that I needed open-heart surgery I don't know how many times the thought came into my mind I wish I could just call dad and tell him about it I, 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 the thought just kept coming and I couldn't and I realized you know why why am I thinking well I know that my dad cared I didn't need him to do anything I, I, I didn't need money from him I didn't need you know I, I just needed him to know what was going on in my life and I realized that he was gone now and I needed to turn to my Heavenly Father for that sense of caring and I know in my head that he cares but it's a little harder because I also know in my head that he could have prevented this heart surgery thing and so it forced me to kind of go a little bit deeper in understanding the care and the love that my Heavenly Father actually has for me. I had to go deeper. I had another experience in life where, you know, this was just a challenge. And I think, you know, how often do we think about our Heavenly Father um, taking the place of our earthly Father? And uh, I don't know, some people, it seems to me, think about God like cause and effect. They think there's this power in the sky that's sort of uh, cause and effect. If I obey God's rules, he'll bless my life. Like God is some kind of cosmic power that, that I can control by being good. And if I just do the right things, then I can get God to bless me, you know, in the way that I want. If I just appease him. And, and so sometimes people will say things like this. They'll say, you know, Pastor, I, I just don't understand, man. I pray, I read my Bible every day, I go to church, I serve on committees, I give money, and I still got cancer. I don't understand that. And I say, well, it's the wrong idea of God. He's not cause and effect. You can't control him. And uh, so often people think about God like that. And I say, you know, that's, it's a misunderstanding of God's true nature. There are other people, it seems to me, sometimes think about God as I'm above God. I'm above God. I live above God. And they'll say things like this. They'll say, you know, um, I, I get in a discussion once in a while with somebody and I'll say, you know, tell me what you're thinking about some spiritual issue or God or something. And I say, well, you know, I don't really think about God much at all. 
And if you ask yourself, well, what's that person really saying? They're saying, I don't really need God. I live above God. God is a crutch for weak people. But me, I don't really need it. I don't really think about God that much at all. Uh, Back in 1971, some of you will remember this, probably not everybody, but um, there was a group, a singing group called the Beatles, and John Lennon was uh, one of the Beatles. And he wrote a song uh, called Imagine. You might remember it. Um, And in that song, uh, Lennon called himself a dreamer, and he said, imagine a world without nations and without religion, without God. Imagine a world without God, and in that world, there would be nothing to kill or die for. And so the line in the song was, imagine all the people living life in peace without God. And if you go to Central Park, New York, there's a memorial for him, and there's one word in the middle of his memorial there, and it just says, imagine. Imagine. And that, that song became an instant hit. It was his most famous song. Why is that? Well, because a lot of people put themselves above God. They live above God. I think I know better than God. If God would just listen to me, I could straighten out everything. And a lot of people in their conception of who God really is try to live above God. Still, others uh, live as if God is somebody they can use. Somebody they can use. We want God's blessings. We want his gifts. We want his secrets. We want his principles. We want his formula. Uh, we had a guy uh, who was a, a um, professor at Fairfield University many years ago, and he used to come down here, and, and he'd sit, and uh, he came here for, uh, I think, like three years. He just listened to the so He took notes on all the sermons. And so I, you know, call him up, go out for lunch with him and so forth. Eventually, he wrote a book. He was a business professor at uh, Fairfield U. He's no longer there, but he became a Christian. But he wrote a book on um, business principles from the Bible. How to be a success in business from stealing God's principles out of the Bible. We don't want God, but we want his principles. There's a lot of people whose approach to God is, you know, what can I learn from what God has to say, uh, how to have good morality and how to live a great life and so on and so forth. And I want anything I can get from God, but I don't want God. I don't want him to be my father, you know. I want the benefits. I want the inheritance, uh, but I don't want him. And we call that consumer Christianity. It's It's kind of like the younger brother in the story of the prodigal who went to his father and said, I'll take everything I can get from you and I'm out of here. I don't want you. I just want what I can benefit. I want to go to heaven. I want my sins forgiven. I I want some principles to live by and so forth, but I don't want you. And if you're living like that, you probably don't think of God as your father, you know. And then still others, I think, um, really uh, think about God as somebody to serve. I want to serve God. I want to live for God. I want to do for God. I feel secure when I do the right things. And how can I do less for myself and more for others? Which all sounds good. But do you remember the older brother in the story of the prodigal son? He did everything he thought that the father would want. But he totally missed the heart of the father. And when that younger brother came home, the older brother felt like he had deserved. And he became jealous. He felt like God owed him. And God is a God of grace. And uh, the older brother really didn't like that. And so there's all these different ways of thinking about God that are not satisfying. They don't work because they're not the primary relationship that God designed. And so what I want to suggest to you this morning is that, you know, um, God is 
offering us, holding out to us in Jesus, a life that's lived with God. A life that's lived with God. Uh, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, When God uh, wanted to communicate with us, he didn't send a list of rules. He didn't send a to-do list. He didn't send, you know, uh, regulations and ceremonies. He sent himself, Emmanuel, God with us. And that God desires to be with us. It's such a great uh, uh, thought about what it means to be in a relationship with God, this everlasting Father, our Father, which is in heaven, who art in heaven. Um, God in his essence is a trinity. He is three persons, but one God. God in his essence is community. In his very essence, he's community. He's three persons. He's only one God. But in his very nature, in his very essence, he is community. In his very existence, he exists in community. And when he first made people, way back in the Garden of Eden, all the way back in Genesis, you remember God was with us. He was walking with our parents uh, in the garden. He was with us. And um, we were supposed to rule over the earth on behalf of God, but in sync with him. And uh, what happened back there in the Garden of Eden is that our original parents chose to live apart from God. We like the creation. We like everything about it. But you know what? We're going to just kind of do our own. We want to be our own God. We want to be our own God. And that desire for control really is the essence of sinfulness. And so this idea of God being our father who wants to be with us and who wants us to be with him, if you go clear to the other end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation and chapter 21, it's very interesting. Um, Here's what's going to happen in the future. Uh, Then I saw a new heaven, a new earth for the first heaven, the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The dwelling place of God is now going to be with man. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What's the big outstanding characteristic about the life that's coming? The millennial period, I think, is what's being referred here. The thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. It's that God is going to be with us. So if we're a person who kind of wants the benefits of God but not God, we're not going to be comfortable there. You know, if we're the kind of person who thinks, you know, this is cause and effect and I can just kind of, you know, manipulate God and control, we're not going to be comfortable there. We're living right now between two paradises, between the paradise in Genesis and the paradise in Revelation that's coming. And both of those paradises were when God himself was with us. And the outstanding characteristic is his presence. And so um, because of the gospel, there's this possibility of beginning the restoration of that life with God, the offer to do life with our Father who's in heaven. And uh, when you think about this, God is not, you know, a means to some other end. Knowing God and experiencing God's presence is the end. 
It's what God has offered us. That's what's ultimately going to be with heaven, the, the privilege of being uh, in that uh, very close relationship with God. He's not a means to some other end. Knowing God is our ultimate desire. It's what we were made for. Uh, Jesus in uh, Matthew's gospel uh, talks about this. Uh, I think this is uh, probably my favorite uh, invitation. In Matthew chapter 11, um, the Lord says this. He says, uh, verse uh, 37, or 27, I'm sorry. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Nobody knows the Son except the Father, and nobody knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. How do you get to have God be in that intimate relationship of Abba or Father you don't apart from Jesus. Jesus is God with us. And Jesus came to reveal the Father to us so that we could not only get to know him, but actually establish this relationship with him. And so look what the Lord says, verse 28. Come unto me, who? All. Come to me, Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. What's this Father in heaven really like? Is he a taskmaster with a whip? And trying to get the most out of us and wants to see us sweat to the, you know, and just do, get what he can out of us to accomplish his purposes. Come unto me, Jesus says. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Hook yourself up to me. By faith, attach yourself to me. Walk through life together with me. Put, put my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. This is how I really am. And this is the invitation. I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. I'll carry the weight. I'll do the yeoman's part of the job. You walk alongside of me. My yoke is easy and my uh, burden is light. Is that how you think of God and attaching yourself? Do you just love to be in the presence of your father because... He loves you, and you sense it, and you know it, and he's done what he needs to do in order to make you comfortable like a good father with any child. And when we set down that rebellious, that uh, fearful, we've not received the spirit of fear. Love and fear are opposites in the Bible, right? First John talks about, you know, uh, fear is cast out by love. Love and fear are kind of opposite ideas. Fear is, is never your friend. Fear is never your friend. And we have been not given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love in which the Father uh, cares for us and invites us to be close to him and so forth. Is this your idea of God? Do you think that God likes you? Sometimes, you know, uh, I don't understand. Like, I'm so excited about, uh, you, you know, we've had men and uh, Bible study on Thursday mornings, and we're we have a prayer meeting on Wednesday nights, and uh, Bob Walter was talking and said, you know, we had like 18 guys come out 6 o'clock in the morning to come and have a Bible study, which is great, but we come to prayer meeting on Wednesday night, we get three or four guys. And it's like, why don't people really like to pray? And I'm thinking, I think really it's our idea of what God is like. I don't want to get that close to him. Because I'm fully known by him. And I'm not so sure that I've received that spirit of love and that 
hangover of spirit of fear of getting close to the Almighty sometimes keeps me out of this. I'll pray to him and ask for things and so forth. But to just spend time in his presence and hang out with my father in heaven who likes that and who invites that like any father loves it when his kids come and just talk to him. And so I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, uh, 6.30 in the morning, that'll help us. I don't understand it, but we'll see. So, you know, if you don't have the right understanding of God, we're going to keep our distance from him, and it's going to be unsatisfying. And we're going to have a Christianity that's less than what it could be if we were to understand our Father uh, correctly. So all that to say, last week we barely skipped over uh, a verse, um, the last verse in Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to just return there um, because this is a description of what God is really like. And this is an invitation for us to be his kids and to be like him. And so in Ephesians 4.32, it says this, you know, be kind to one another. Be kind to one another. And be tender-hearted. And forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Kindness, tender-heartedness, and forgiveness. Is that how you think about your Father in heaven? Um, is that the way we conceive of God or think about him? Um, it's unfortunate, I think, that there's a chapter division next. I think the uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, carries on this thought. You might remember that um, in verse 30, this little section here says, look, don't grieve the spirit that's in you. You, you. The spirit of fear has been taken out of you. The Holy Spirit's been put in you. It's a spirit of love. Don't grieve that spirit that God has given you. That spirit of himself. And then he says, you know, but instead be kind, be tenderhearted, be forgiving. And he says, and therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Be an imitator of this God who's kind and who's tenderhearted. Uh, has anybody ever told you, you know, that God is kind, that he's tenderhearted, that he's forgiving? Because most people kind of start out in life with this idea that God is other than that. And uh, they carry that like all the way through their life. If you say to people sometimes just sit and have a cup of coffee and say, you know, tell me about the God you worship. What's he like? It's very interesting to hear people's conceptions of God. Most of them are hangovers from their own fathers who are all less than perfect. And uh, instead, you know, Jesus came so that we could know the truth about what he's really like. And so first we have to know what God is really like. We have to have the right impression. In uh, Mark's gospel, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a crazy guy living out in the hills, you know. And he was like super strong. And he'd cry and scream out in the day and at night and everything. And the, and the townspeople came and they tried to like corral this guy and control him. And they put chains on him. They put shackles on him. And this guy would bust the chains. He would break the shackles. You remember in Mark chapter 5? And so finally Jesus comes to his neck of the woods. And uh, Jesus realized that he's got this demonic possession, these demons that are inside of him. And Jesus commands the demons to leave. They go into a whole herd of pigs. You remember this? And the pigs go over the cliff and they all drown in the sea. And so the townspeople hear about this and they come out to see what's going on. A whole group of people. And when they get there, they see this guy and he's dressed and he's in his right mind and he's calm. And you know what the people say? They say to Jesus, 
please leave us. Please get out of here. Get away from me. And I've always thought, like, why would you say that? Here you've had this problem with this guy. Jesus shows up. You know, now the guy's in his right mind and he's normal and everything else. And, and now you're like, please leave us. You know what? They're afraid of his power. They're like, wow, if this guy has that power over that crazy guy, what's he going to do to us? Please leave us. You know what the crazy guy says? Can I please go with you? Can I be with you? And I've always thought, you know, that's the difference between people who know the touch of Jesus and the people who don't. The people who don't want to keep him away. They might, oh my goodness, this is God, and if he gets too close to me, I'm going to lose everything. No, you're going to gain everything. But once you're touched by the Lord, once you realize that God is kind and that he is tenderhearted and that he is forgiving, then you want to be with him. You want to be close to him. You want all the benefits that come of being reconciled to him as one of his children. And so you look at this. God is kind. He's full of grace and mercy. There are many places in the Bible we could go to talk about that. Um, in the Old Testament, there's just one place. In First Chronicles, way back in the Old Testament, First Chronicles chapter 21, it's kind of a funny story. Uh, King David, who's, you know, a real hero in the Old Testament, uh, had sinned and displeased God. And so um, uh, God sends his prophet Gad uh, to go talk to David. And so in verse uh, 10 or so, we pick it up and he says, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I might do it to you. So God is upset with David. David sinned. God's going to punish David. And God is saying to David, I'm going to give you three choices. You can choose your own punishment. You ever do this with your kids? You got one of three choices as to what I'm going to do to you, Right. And so, um, and thus says the Lord, choose what you will, either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord. You choose your punishment. Which one do you want? Uh, pestilence on the land uh, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout the territory of Israel. Now you decide the answer that I shall return to him who sent me. And David says to Gad, he says, I'm in great distress. <laughs> I bet you are, pal. Then he says this, I'm going to take the third one because I would rather fall into the hand of the Lord because his mercy is great. Do not put me in the hand of man. See, David is saying, from my experience, I know what the Lord is like. And I would rather fall into the hand of the Lord than into the hand of man. <laughs> because why? Because the Lord is merciful, because he's tenderhearted, because he's forgiving. And sure enough, if you go on to read the rest of it, uh, the Lord sent a pestilence and 70,000 men fell. And, and God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and he relented from the calamity. Sure enough. Why? Because he's gracious, because he's forgiving. And uh, he said to the angel who was working destruction, it's enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing and so on and so forth. And what a, um, what a great passage to remember. God is kind. God is tenderhearted. Tenderhearted. If you follow Jesus around, so often Jesus is moved by compassion, even when he's dying. The people who are killing him and mocking him and spitting in his face, you know, he's saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Tenderhearted. 
He's hanging on the cross. He's in agony. The father is turning his back on him, and he looks to John and says, you know, take care of mom. He's tenderhearted, this God of ours. He's tenderhearted. Um, even the soldiers who were around the cross were compelled to say, you know, truly, this was the Son of God. Who does that when you're hanging from a cross? Truly, this was the Son of God. God's tenderhearted. He's encouraging. He's sympathetic, you know. And can you think of anything that people need more than for somebody to be tenderhearted? The world just gets to be a harder and harder place. But our God is tenderhearted, and he's forgiving. Everybody needs forgiveness. You know, grace is uh, God's uh, undeserved favor. Undeserved favor. And we all need that. We all need the forgiveness, the favor of God. Forgiveness, I think, means never bringing up again a resolved conflict. I think God has promised that he will never bring up again to us any sins that are covered by the blood of Jesus on the cross. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgiveness means never bringing up again a resolved conflict. And our conflict with God is resolved at the cross. God is tenderhearted, and he's kind, and he's forgiving. And so the very next word in that uh, fifth chapter says, Therefore, therefore, be imitators of God. As God's kids, be an imitator of God. You, be kind. <coughs> be tenderhearted. Be forgiving. Once you know the truth about God, once you become convinced and impressed with the way that God really is, um, that becomes your prime source for your own identity. Imitate your father. The word is mamitai. It's the word we get our word mimic from. It's the Greek word that we get our word mimic or mimeograph. You remember the old mimeograph? Uh, that's before copiers, and it means to make a copy of God. Why? Because God wants to fill the earth with himself. You and I are the body of Christ, the presence of Christ in the world. And he says, imitate me, mimic me, be a mimeograph of me. Uh, imitate God as his children. And this is why it's so important to have the correct understanding of the way that God is. Um, we're to be the presence of God in the world today. We're to be kind. We're to be tenderhearted. And we're to be forgiving. And it'll cost us to be those things. It cost Jesus big time. And that's why I think the Lord said, unless you're willing to die to yourself and be kind and be tenderhearted and be forgiving, you can't be my disciple. You can't be like me. You can't be a mimeograph of me. You can't mimic me. Unless you're willing to die to that self and imitate our Father in heaven and be his presence in the in the world today as loved children as beloved children therefore be imitators of god as beloved children do you think of yourself as a loved and the words agape the highest form of love as loved children the next verse says walk in love as christ loved us you know it's one thing for people to say i love you it's another thing for people to say, I'm going to love you as Christ loves me, as God loves me. That's a whole different ballgame than what the world means by I love you. I'm going to love you as God loves me. The same thing about forgiveness back in uh, verse 32 of chapter 4. Um, 
I'm going to forgive as God forgives me. Well, who are you? Who are you? Do you think of yourself as a child, a loved child of your father in heaven? Um, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, says you are a people for God's own possession. Who are you? You are a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now you are the people of God. Who are you? One of my um, all-time favorite stories, true story, is uh, about a guy named Fred Craddock. And uh, Craddock was a professor of preaching at Emory and uh, was, preaching, was uh, teaching in Oklahoma at Phillips University when uh, he and his wife decided to take a vacation uh, down to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And uh, one night on their vacation, they were uh, sitting having dinner at uh, the Blackberry Inn in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And they noticed this old man who was moving around from table to table, and they sort of thought he was probably the proprietor of the Blackberry Inn. And uh, Craddock was uh, sort of a private person, and so, you know, the last thing he wanted was for some old man to come and start talking. You know, like when you go on vacation, he just wanted to be kind of away from people and with his wife, and he didn't want to be bothered and, and so forth. So the last thing they wanted was some old stranger to come and, and talk to them. But out of the corner of his eye, he noticed uh, that this old man spotted the Craddocks, and he was headed for their table. So the old man comes over. He says, hey, where are you all from? You know, and Craddock, barely lifting his eyes from his meal, says, Oklahoma. And the guy says, uh, wow, he says, what do you do there in Oklahoma? And Craddock says, well, I teach homiletics. And he's hoping the old guy doesn't know what homiletics is, and that's going to end the conversation. But the old boy uh, instead pulled up a chair. And he sat down at the Craddock's table, and he said, oh, he says, so you're a preacher. He says, I got a great preacher story for you. And he sat down, and he began. And old Craddock looked at his wife and rolled his eyes and so forth. And, and the old man said this. He says, you see that mountain over there outside that window? He says, I, I was born not far from that mountain. And he says, my mother... She wasn't married at the time that I was born. And the shame and the reproach that fell on her fell on me as well. They had a name for me when I started school. They called me Ben the B-Boy. Ben the B-Boy. Kids can be so cruel. And uh, he says, I remember going off by myself at recess time because the other kids used to bully me. But the worst was to go with mom into town on Saturday to do the shopping. All those piercing eyes staring at us, wondering, you know, whose boy is he? I wonder who his father is. And continuing on, he said, when I was about 12, a new preacher came to our little town and to our little church. And the people began to start talking about church again. And folks hadn't been to church for years, but they started to come to see if this guy was any good. He says, I went myself. I slipped in the back door to hear this guy preach. I slipped in late and I sat near the back for fear that somebody would spot me and say, what's a boy like you doing in a place like this? But one Sunday, the benediction got said quicker than I realized. And I, I found myself caught. Thanks. I found myself um, 
I found myself caught uh, in a crowd of people all heading for the front door, and I was terrified. I was scared to death somebody would recognize me and embarrass me right there in church. I almost made it to the door when I felt a hand on my shoulder. I turned around, and there he was. It was that preacher, and he was staring at me with those burning eyes, and then he said it. He said, son, who are you? I don't think I've seen you here before. And I thought to myself, oh, no, here we go again. But then a smile of recognition broke out across this preacher's face, and he said, wait a minute, I know you. I know you. You you are a son of God. You are a son of God. And then he slapped me across the back, and he said, boy... You come from quite a family, and you've got a great inheritance. Why don't you go out there and claim it? And then the old man looked at Craddock, and he said, you know, that one statement changed my whole life as a 12-year-old boy. Well, by that time, Craddock was actually listening to this strange old man, and so he asked him, he said, you know, well, who are you anyway? The man said, my name's Hooper, Ben Hooper. Ben Hooper, Craddock said. You know, I'm from Tennessee, and my granddaddy used to talk about the fact that on two separate occasions, the people of Tennessee elected an illegitimate governor, and his name was Ben Hooper. Are you him? I am, he said. You are the son of God. You come from a huge, great family. You have a huge inheritance. Go out there and claim it. What a great thing. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved you and gave himself for you, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, what a privilege it is to be able to call ourselves daughters and sons of the living God. What a great thing you've done for us in Jesus Christ when you got rid of everything that's standing between us and you. And you reconciled us to yourself and you forgave us and you were tenderhearted and you were kind to us. Forgive us, Heavenly Father, when we forget these things and we sort of drift away from you. It's like on Father's Day, all of a sudden we think, oh, wow, it's Father's Day. I haven't talked to my dad in a couple of years. Maybe I should call him or send him a card or whatever. And some of us, Father, forgive us. We're, we're like that with you. We're just so enthralled with life and we're so busy and we're so moving forward that we forget about who we really are, sons and daughters of the living God. And so this morning, I pray that you would bring this home to our hearts. I pray that you would help us to understand how kind and how tenderhearted and how forgiving you've been with us. And that we would relish that, that we would so appreciate you, that we would so appreciate the fact that we are loved children of the living God and we have this great inheritance and we have this rich heritage and and, uh, we can look back, we can look forward, we're living between two paradises and you ask us to just be imitators of you, to be like you to take all of those qualities that you have invested in us and to go live them with other people so that you could fill the earth and fill other people's souls with yourself. Help us, Heavenly Father, to have that desire. 
Help us to have a proper understanding of who you are as our Father and to have this great desire to be like you and to live that out, Father, in our everyday life. For your sake and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.